Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of uh, the pastors here and excited to begin uh, the study on Isaiah with you. But uh, before I do, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, uh, we uh, have, even in these few verses, are reminded that what we have before us is not just our words, but it is your word. Lord, it is a remarkable thing that the God of the universe would choose to speak to us, and we don't want to take this lightly. And so we ask, as we do every week, that you would open our ears so that we could hear, that you would help me to be able to speak clearly and faithfully, uh, that we would be more and more the church you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, as Brent has already said, we are beginning a fairly lengthy service, uh, s- sorry, sermon series on the... <laughs> Boy, is that not a Freudian slip? Uh, no, I don't think this will be a lengthy service, and it's certainly not beginning right now, but it is beginning a long sermon series. Uh, and it's more than that. Uh, like as Brent said, we're going to be spending every other week looking at it during adult Sunday school. Many of you who are in discipleship groups will be studying it there. We could really call this like the Isaiah Project, and I'm really excited about it. But you might go, why? Like, why, why are we doing this? Which is a fair question, because that's a lot of energy, a lot of time. And I know that Brent said Isaiah is a beloved book, but I don't know if that is actually true for many of us. Because, I mean, let's face it, Isaiah is long. Uh, apart from Psalms, Isaiah has more chapters than any other book of the Bible. And Isaiah is a poem, or a lot of poems. And many of us, when we come to the Bible, like it when there are instructions or maybe stories, but with poetry, we don't know what to do about that. And it's old. I mean, this was written about 750, 700 B.C. And so in a day of like iPhones and gene splicing, when we're reading about nations that don't even exist anymore and battles that we don't know anything about, we're like, how is this going to speak to us? And it's complicated. If you've ever tried reading through Isaiah, trying like from beginning to end, maybe you've had this experience. Yes, there are moments that you go, oh, this is great. I mean, like, to us a child is born. I understand this is about Jesus. And then Isaiah 53, but, but how does it all fit together? It's, it's not an easy book. Uh, But to paraphrase John F. Kennedy, we choose to go through Isaiah not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Or more to the point, not because it's easy, but because it is so worth the effort. Uh, We don't, this isn't just a book. I mean, the opening verses just said, listen, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken. There is nothing 
uncertain about what this book is claiming for itself. This is God's Word given to us. And it is extraordinary. I, I don't want to compare books of the Bible. They all are obviously important for us, but there's a sense that the book of Isaiah is the Mount Everest of the Bible. You get to these, this high point, this peak, where you have some extraordinary moments in this book. Um, one commentator I, wrote, I read called this the, the Romans of the Old Testament because it is so theologically rich. In fact, uh, if you look at the New Testament, um, apart from quoting the Psalms, no book is quoted by the New Testament more than Isaiah because Isaiah is where it all comes together. All the threads of the Old Testament are brought together and it all points to Jesus. There is a sense that you and I can't really understand the New Testament if we don't understand generally what's going on in the book of Isaiah. It's, it's that significant. And it's not just theologically rich, it's beautiful. There are some images in here that are some of the most glorious images of any literature anywhere. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Those who wait on the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. Things will be so glorious that the trees will clap their hands. He, like a lamb before Shearer was silent, he did not open his mouth. There are so many images, and we should not go through Isaiah if we're not actually spending time allowing those images to move us, because poetry is not just meant to inform us, it's meant to form us. And, and what's more, with this beauty and this theological profundity, there is something just, I don't know another word, but to say that it's holy in this book. This book is so full of God. Every page we are confronted with His greatness, with His glory, and as we listen and as we learn, what we discover is we see Jesus. So during my sabbatical, people ask, what have you been doing during your sabbatical? And there's all sorts of stuff I've been doing. But the thing that probably more than anything else that occupied my time was reading Isaiah. I probably, I spent hours upon hours reading this book, and I feel like I have only scratched the surface of something that is just extraordinarily complex in the, in the best of ways. And, and I found myself truly being changed by it. And my hope is that as we work on this book together, that as we kind of join in the Isaiah project together, that we as a church will experience that happening to us, that as, as God opens our eyes to the wonders in this book, we ourselves will be changed. So that's, that's why we're doing this. I hope you can get excited with me. I hope you join with me because I really believe that what God has for us is, is an amazing treasure in these words. And, and thankfully, even though we've said this book is complex and there's a way that it is, we're also told from the outset how to read it. I don't know if you noticed, but that first verse is basically giving us a kind of user's guide for the book. And so I'm only gonna be focusing on that opening verse this morning and I want us to notice three things that help us to orient ourselves in, as we're trying to read and listen to this book together. The first thing we should notice is that this book of Isaiah is Isaiah's magnum opus. It is his lifelong work. Why do I say that? Well, do you notice, he says, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, 
and Hezekiah. Now, I realize those names probably mean very little to most of us, but you should at least recognize that those are a lot of kings that have been mentioned. And actually, what's being described is a span of at least 40 years, which means Isaiah from maybe his 20s when he was first called by God to be a prophet, which means he was someone who would hear God speak and then speak on God's behalf to his community. He was doing this for the span of 40 years, and, and not 40 easy years, but 40 tumultuous years. When he first began his ministry during the reign of Isaiah, or right when Isaiah died, Israel, I mean, sorry, Judah, which is the nation he was speaking to, was doing pretty well. They were prosperous, politically stable, military wasn't bad, but then over the course of decade after decade, things got more and more chaotic and tumultuous and anxiety-inducing until near the end of Isaiah's ministry, the people of Judah have been just beat up by Assyria. They are bruised. Cities have been torn down. They are weak. And Isaiah says, and it's going to get worse because Babylon is going to come and it's going to take you away. That's where his ministry ends up. It is uh, to a people who are exhausted. And so what we have in the book of Isaiah is those prophecies that he spoke over the course of 40 years. But it's not just kind of a grab bag, an anthology where someone just kind of collected it. Notice that he says it is the vision of Isaiah, not visions. This isn't an anthology. This is a coherent unity. We're, I think, meant to understand that at the end of Isaiah's ministry, as he is getting near to his end, he takes all of his prophecies and he collects it and he organizes and he edits and he refines and at places we'll see he adds to it so that he can make one coherent work, one coherent message with themes that develop that come to a climax and are resolved. And, and they are all for the people that he's writing for. He's writing to a nation that is exhausted, a nation that is in despair, a nation that has been beat up, and a nation that soon will be in exile. And to this nation that is beginning to experience being humbled and brought low, the book of Isaiah is meant to lift them up and give them hope. And I think that's valuable to note as we begin because I obviously am not a prophet, but I do wonder if we are at a time where God's people again are being humbled. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The church is not doing well in some ways right now. It is being exposed. Its ugliness is being brought to light. There is hypocrisy. People are leaving it. We are being humbled. And to a humbled people who are tempted to despair, the book of Isaiah declares hope, declares a glorious future for the people of God. So this is, as I said, Isaiah's magnum opus, his lifelong work, all working together to try to give clarity and hope, in some ways to proclaim the gospel to his people. But the second thing that I want us to notice, and I want us especially to spend some time on this one, is that this, this magnum opus of Isaiah is something that is given to, to enable us to see. Do you notice what it's called? It is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And it's not just his vision, his seeing things, as we've already said. It is the Lord who has spoken. This is a vision that God has given to Isaiah and that Isaiah is giving to his people, to us, to enable us to see things as they really are. 
You know, I think people oftentimes misunderstand what the Bible is. They see it as just kind of a, a religious book, and by religious book they mean something that is meant to help us feel inspired when we're down and meant to give us some practical instructions when we're looking for what to do with our life. But that's, that's actually not what the Bible is. It has that element. But the Bible is meant to put us in contact with reality. What the Bible is really, in some ways, is a book about history, and not just any history, but the real history. It is meant to orient us to understand the way things as they actually are, to know what really has happened and what really is happening, and to understand how we fit into the real story of life. It is meant to connect us to truth. It's not just about inspiration or practicality. It's just reality. You know, last week we spoke of the importance of a mindset. Do you remember how the, the idea of, even before we think about what we do, the way we see the world, the way that we think of it is so fundamental to how we live. Well, Isaiah is saying this book is meant to give us a mindset, to give us a vision, a way of seeing things as they really are. And that's important for us, perhaps, perhaps especially in our day. Because, and I don't know if you thought of it this way, but there's a real sense that you and I are part of a massive societal experiment that's gone on for about 200 years. And here's how I characterize the experiment. The experiment is basically saying, what would happen if society acts as if God is unimportant and irrelevant? We probably don't realize how strange that actually is. But if you look at history, this is the only time in all of human history, in all of the world, that we've ever done something like this, where we've basically said, let's just remove God from our, our public life. If you go back just a couple hundred years to the way our literature is, and, you know, English-speaking literature, think of, I don't know, Moby Dick, or Robinson Crusoe, or, or Jane Eyre, or the works of Shakespeare. You know what you find again and again? God is just part of the story. He's just a reality that's part of the way they see things. Or, or think of uh, the Declaration of Independence, that, that all men are created equal and are given these inalienable rights. How? Bestowed by their Creator. It is so fundamental just to the way things were that public policy was built on this in the 18th century. And it's not just in English speaking. If you go, say, to the Greek tragedies, again and again, as they're trying to wrestle with life, they're trying to make sense of what the gods are doing. Or, or if you go to, to Eastern literature and you just notice how it is haunted by, by a spirituality, everywhere you look, apart from the last couple of centuries, throughout the world, God or some idea of divinity has always been a part of reality, of the way that, that things are seen or framed, but not now. Think about you have a favorite TV show. When's the last time God was a part of the show? I'm not talking about religion. Religion's the human aspect of things. Yes, we'll talk about religion because then we want to know whether the evangelicals are changing the vote or things like that. I'm talking about God. When you have conversations with neighbors, how much do we talk about God? When, when public policy is being formed, to what extent do we think of how is this going to be either honoring or dishonoring to God? There, we have decided let's, let's remove him. It's like, 
It's like, you know, when, when there's been a breakup and you have pictures of you and your ex, and the best thing to do with a digital image is just to kind of crop it out, and so now it's just a nice picture of you. It's kind of like we've done that, right? We have a picture of reality, and we've just kind of taken this digital image and saying, let's just zoom in and crop out anything about transcendence or about God and just treat it like it's not important. Now, you might say, well, yeah, that's what we've done because people no longer believe in God like they used to, but here's the thing. It's, I mean, even the most recent surveys have said nine in 10 people believe in some way that God is real. Less than 10% identify themselves as atheistic or agnostic in our country. And most of the people who do will say they believe that God made this world, that in some way he rules over this world, and that he's the one who will control our fate when we die. That is generally the way that our country operates, which, which means we don't make sense, right? Because we are saying that the being who is the most powerful in the universe, the one who made us, who knows what we should be, the one who holds our fate in his hands is one we won't think about or talk about or do anything in relationship to. Does that make any sense to you? And yet that's what we've done. Let's just crop him out. Now, how do you think that's affecting us? We've said mindsets change us. So what do you think happens when we decide we are going to remove from the picture any sense of God from our normal reality? Th think of how it affects the way we view meaning. If, if we don't really take God into account, where do we find importance? Well, I guess we just have to work hard, have a nice home with a good kitchen and, and, and good security, even while deep in our soul there's something crying out saying there should be something more. Or, or maybe we, when we're facing anxiety, what are we supposed to do with that when we realize this world is chaotic? We've cropped God out of the picture so we can't look to him. So the only way we can say is like, we're just gonna have to try hard and figure it out ourselves, even though a part of us knows that we can't do the things that need to be fixed. There is something that needs, that our soul needs in relationship to God that by cropping him out, we have become sick and desperate. That's been the experiment of the last 200 years, and I don't think it's progress. And what Isaiah does is he says, come, let me, let me give you a different vision, a vision where God isn't cropped out. I'm reminded of um, the story of Jacob. We've talked about this before, maybe you remember, where Jacob is this guy who's kind of a shady character, and he's running from his family. His brother wants to kill him, and he's terrified, and he's all on his own in the middle of nowhere in the desert. The only pillow he has is a rock, and, and in that moment where he's sleeping, God gives him a vision. And in the very spot he is, he sees the sky opened up and the staircase coming down from heavens, and angels are going up and down, and at the top of the staircase, God is there. And as he wakes up, he says, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. His eyes have been opened. Or I think of another figure in the Bible, Elisha, um, a prophet not too long before Isaiah, just about a century. 
And, and Elisha has made one of the foreign kings angry, and so the foreign king comes with his army, and he surrounds the city that Elisha is in. And so Elisha's servant wakes up one morning, and he goes out to the wall, and he sees that they're there for him, and he's terrified. He comes back to Elisha. They go up to some spot, maybe looking out over the land, and they see the military and say, Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha doesn't seem worried. And what Elisha does is then he prays. He prays for the eyes of the servant to be opened, and when the eyes of the servant is opened, he sees beyond the army another army of fiery angels that are far bigger and more terrifying, and suddenly he's not afraid because his eyes have been opened and he sees. Or I think of the prophet Isaiah himself. Isaiah has this vision. The way his ministry begins, it says one time, and we don't know whether he was awake or whether he was asleep, but suddenly God gives him this vision where he realizes he's in the temple. And it's not just that he's in the center of the temple, but God is there before him on this throne, high and lofty. And there's these terrifying, fiery creatures that are declaring God's greatness. And the whole world is shaking because of the presence of God. And as Isaiah realizes he's seeing God, he sees himself for the first time. And he realizes how dare he be before God because he is so sinful. In that moment, everything that happens then and right after will shape him forever after. This, this vision opens his eyes and he sees Now, the thing that's true about each of these stories, it's not like any of these guys, Jacob or Elisha's servant or Isaiah, realized that their eyes were closed before. Each of them, to some degree, said, surely God is in this place, and I did not know it. But they did not realize their eyes were closed until they were opened. And Isaiah comes with this and says, here, take and listen and allow your eyes to be opened. Allow the cropping to be removed that you might see. Surely God is in this world. Surely God is in your life, even though right now you do not know it. This is the vision, a way of seeing. So we've said this is Isaiah's magnum opus, and it is a vision to help us to see. But I want you to notice specifically what this vision is about. Did you notice it says, this vision which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, don't get me wrong. This book is filled with God. It is meant to help us to see everything in light of the reality of who God is. But there is something specific we are meant to see, and that is... Judah and Jerusalem, or to put it differently, the people of God, sometimes referred to in Isaiah as the city of God or, or Zion. Or to put it in a more contemporary way, this vision is about the church. It is God's vision that he gives us to help us to see us as he sees us. Now, on one hand, that, that's... There's, there's kind of a dark aspect to this because part of what we will see as we go through the coming chapters is the terrible ugliness of our own sin. It, Isaiah exposes the emptiness of some of our religious observances, the, the hypocrisy, the, the failure in terms of when we're called to righteousness. There is a bright light that is being shown upon us, and we will feel the, the, what's being exposed. 
But the, the purpose of that, of being able to see ourselves rightly, is not just to make us feel terrible about ourselves. It's actually a gift. Because until we realize how helpless we are, until we realize how much we need help, we will not be helped. It, it is a gift to be humbled, even though it is a painful thing, because only those who are humbled are willing to learn. Only those who are humbled are willing to ask for help and to be helped. And that is what God brings us to so that we can actually grow. I've heard it said, don't, don't pray for humility because you don't know what's going to happen to you. And yes, I think oftentimes when we do pray for humility, we're, we're asking for things that will be unpleasant. But I want to encourage you as we begin to pray for humility, to pray that God would give us a sense of our own inadequacy that we might look to Him and be healed. But even as this vision is meant to help us to see our sinfulness, that's actually not the primary thing that it is meant to help us to see. It is meant also to help us to see as we look at ourselves, as we think about the church, that we have a destiny, a future that far outstrips our imagination. Do you know, the book of Isaiah actually is the first book of the Bible that really uses the term gospel. It appears about midway through. And the gospel that Isaiah proclaims is this, that, that everything that we have lost in this world, everything that we have broken and corrupted, all that is good that we have tarnished, God is going to restore. I mean, we, we read this in our call to worship, right? And this is something that we see throughout. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing. God is going to restore all that has been lost. And, and what Isaiah tells us as we understand, as we spend time with it, is the way he is going to do this is through Jesus. And the way Jesus is ultimately going to do this is going to make things right, is going to make us whole, this world whole, our relationship with God whole again. The way He is going to do this is through the church. The extraordinary and confusing message of Isaiah is that this messy, sinful, faulty group of people that we are in this congregation and every congregation of the world is going to be made by God to be beautiful and glorious so that the nations stream in and are changed. That's what Isaiah proclaims to us. And if there's one thing that I hope that we understand by the end of this, it's that this is not just a pipe dream that this is not just some sort of inspirational message to kind of make us feel up on a day that it's gray and gloomy like today. This is reality. And God means us to have this go so deep within us, to be such a part of our way of thinking that it's like in our very bones to realize this is the truth. Because because this is history. God, we, we really did break this world. I don't actually think I need to convince any of us, whether you are a believer or not, this world is broken and we know it. And God really did say, I am going to rescue and redeem it and make all things right. And he really did do the things he said he would do in the book of Isaiah. Just, just think of the story that Isaiah tells you who walk in darkness will have seen a great light. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit who delights in righteousness and truth. We know this is 750 years before Jesus, and yet it is so clear as we read. It's, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about who he is, his life. And then it says, oh, we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It declares the cross, and then we see the cross taking place. And Isaiah says, and yet he shall see the light of life and be satisfied. He will rise again, we are being told. 750 years before, God says, this is what I am going to do. And then he does it because this is reality. And the reason that I am emphasizing that is because if all of that is true, then that means the other part is true as well. That means that you and I, whether we realize it or not, are at the epicenter of God's glorious rescuing work of this world. And that what we do together this morning, as ordinary as it might feel, what we do as we are sent out into the world throughout the week, serving Lord Christ with our vocations, serving in our homes. What we do is of cosmic and eternal significance whether we realize it or not. That's what Isaiah intends for us to see. You know, um, over these last few months, uh, Jennifer can tell you because I keep on bringing it up. One of the questions that I feel like God has kept on poking me with is the question, what would it be like if you actually believed all of this? Because the reality is, and I, I, I see this about myself, that there are times to my chagrin that my faith is half-hearted. That the follow-through from what I believe theoretically to my convictions that lead to action is, is not consistent. That there is a sense that I too, in, in so much of my life, have cropped out God. And, and the question that I keep on being asked with is, what would happen if I didn't? What would it be like if this vision was truly my vision to the very depths of my being, if I really saw this glorious work as, as what's really going on? As I keep on asking that question, I feel like God has been working through that to, to lead me to repentance when it comes to things like prayer, in terms of my anxieties. I'd like to ask us the same question. What, what would it look like if we really believed this? If we really believed this gospel, if we really believe that God is doing something that is of infinite importance, even as it looks so ordinary? What if we believe that, that God truly does love us, as he says, that he truly is doing those things? What would happen if we believed it? Because let me tell you, the world is waiting for the answer to that question. Because what the world needs is a congregation that doesn't fit in the crop. 
uh, one that, that acts and speaks and live in a way that doesn't make sense with a cropped view, in a way that when people look and say, what is going on? And maybe even as they enter in, say, surely God is in this place. What, what, what we are called is to be a congregation of men and women who truly believe this gospel and truly live like it. And so I ask us to think together, what would it look like if we truly, deeply believe this? And my prayer is as we go through this book together that God would answer that question for us. And I invite you even now with me to respond in prayer, whether it's a time of confession or a time of just asking God for help. And in a couple minutes' time, I will lead us in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father, this morning, on behalf of all of us, I pray. For those here who are among us who are maybe just beginning to consider what your word says, I pray that you would make things clear to them and that you would open their eyes to see. For those of us, Lord, that you have have brought to faith and yet like me, we are still so often living as if this isn't true. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We acknowledge our sin, our hypocrisy. Lord, that grieves us. We don't want to be that way. We want to be the people you have created us to be, wholly trusting in you, wholly loving you in the world around us, and we cannot do this apart from your help. So, Father, even as we acknowledge our sin, even as we take hold of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus, we ask that you would change us. Lord, we ask as we begin this series together that that your vision that you have here in this book would take hold of our minds and our hearts and our lives, that we would be a community who shows your glory and shows your love to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, as we come before God with our failings, hear what God says in response. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. 
Thanks be to God.